0: Morning, everyone. Linda and I enjoyed a great trip to uh, Tennessee. I was speaking at a conference down there, and uh, we enjoyed the uh, the time of fellowship. And uh, we had an opportunity to visit with uh, Neil Pollard, who used to be the uh, preacher at the Cold Harbor Church of Christ. And Neil was telling us about his son Carl, who was in a, a a motorcycle accident some time ago, and uh, they didn't think he was very badly injured, but he been having some problems with his head, and uh, so they think there may be a brain aneurysm or something, and they're in the process of uh, checking for that now and, and uh, doing some more tests. So i would ask you to add Carl Pollard, please, if you will, to your uh, prayer list and uh, be praying for him and for his family as he undergoes this uh, as well. We've been talking about worship for the past several weeks, and I I hope that you're beginning to see from our study of worship that worship is more than just the performance of a set of rituals. It's not just something that we do because we are required to do it, to stay on the good side of God, but rather that it's something that ought to be a life-changing event A couple of weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 73 and Asaph and how how Asaph's uh, perspective was changed, his perspective about himself and his perspective about the wicked and his perspective about God and how when he went into uh, the house of worship, into the sanctuary of God, he said, that he had his mind changed because he'd been thinking that uh, the wicked had it good. Nothing bad ever happened to them and their lives were easy and God didn't paying attention to what they were doing and uh, that uh, it was uh, perhaps all in vain that he was trying to live a good life because nothing seemed to go that well for him. But he said, then I went into the sanctuary of God. And and he began to see things rightly. His perspective was changed. Well, when we read about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 and his worship experience, it's not just his perspective that changes. It's his whole life. He's not ever the same from the day that we read about in Isaiah 6 for the rest of his entire life. And so to see why Isaiah's worship was so life-changing, we need to understand what was going on when he had the vision that we just heard read about from Isaiah 6. Personally speaking, he was just a young man. He was, most people think, probably about 20 years old. He may have been a priest. He may have been from a privileged family. We can't be positive about that, but some uh, are of the opinion that that was his his role. But he's very, very young when he has this vision, very impressionable. And nationally, the country, Israel, Judah in which he lived, was undergoing a time of enormous transition and, and turbulence. Notice verse 1 says that this vision happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, if you read the book of uh, 1 Kings, or 2 Kings, excuse me, you'll find uh, that Uzziah there is called Azariah, all right? But it's the same king. But in the year that King Uzziah died, well, King Uzziah had reigned in Judah for 52 years. you imagine that? A 52-year reign, and they were good years, the country was prosperous economically, and they were strong militarily, and they were stable politically. But now Isaiah was dead. And now what was going to happen? They weren't at all sure. They weren't sure what was going to happen from this point on. And to make matters worse, the Assyrians, their mortal enemies, had been sweeping southward, just taking city after city. And as Isaiah speaks, they are right outside the gates of the city. And threatening to take Jerusalem as well. And to make matters worse, Israel was being led by a weakling and everything seemed frightening and hopeless. But when Isaiah had that vision of God in the temple, everything changed. Now I'm saying it's a vision of God because, you know, the Bible tells us that no one can look at God and live. And so, this must be some sort of vision where he's allowed to see something of God, something of the glory of God. It's hard for us to describe things like that. But he sees him in the temple because he sees him sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and he says that the train of his robe filled the temple. That's how we know where this happens. This vision took place in the temple. This vision took place obviously when Isaiah was there in the very act of worship. He has this Vision of God. And as in Isaiah, 4, or in Revelation 4, he sees him sitting, sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and he sees those angelic beings called the seraphim, the burning ones, the shining ones, with their six wings flying back and forth and calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these beings are so impressed with the holiness of God. That as awesome as they are, they are reverent in the presence of God. They use two of their wings to cover their faces and two to cover their feet, and only two to fly. And they fly back and forth, and they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they call this out, this great song, the foundations of the building shook And the whole place was filled with smoke. This had to be the most incredible moment of Isaiah's life, the most amazing thing that he had ever seen. And he was not ever the same afterward. Verse 5 tells us the impression that this vision made on him. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, what did this vision have to do with Isaiah being convicted in that way? Well, in the presence of God's awe-inspiring holiness, he couldn't think about anything except how unholy he was. Putting himself in the presence of God caused him to see the distance between himself and God and to see how holy God was and how unholy he was. And in other words, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. There wasn't a word that could pass his lips that was, that was pure enough, that was clean enough to be spoken in the presence of God. And not only that, he says he lived in the, in the midst of, a, of a, the whole nation of unclean lips. They were all that way. They were all unclean. They were all unholy. They were all lost, he says. And so it looked like a hopeless situation until something happened that seems to foreshadow the cross of Jesus. One of those shining ones, one of those seraphim, flew to the altar and took a coal and flew right at Isaiah and touched his lips with it. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I think, you know, if that thing had been coming at me, I know I would have had to duck if not just run. But here comes this incredible being flying toward him and carrying in his hand a a hot coal with which to touch his lips. And that sounds like an, an experience of horror, but it isn't. It's an experience of grace. It's an experience of grace because he says, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I don't think Isaiah expected that, do you? I don't think he saw that coming. I don't think he realized that standing in the presence of an all-holy God, he was going to have an experience that caused him to be forgiven and to know that his sins were atoned for. Now, we might have thought after that experience that Isaiah would go home and just sit back in the recliner and and just think about how fortunate he was that he didn't die and what a close call that was and and just be grateful to God that that he was in the presence of God's holiness and yet he'd been spared and and thankfully I I made it through. And and now I'm able to, to be done with it. But you see, the service wasn't over. The angel coming and touching his lips with that hot coal may have been kind of the climax of it all, but the service isn't over. Because in verse 8, he says, I heard a voice that said, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? When I read Isaiah 6, I find myself wondering, was there anybody else there? Were there other worshipers there? In in the temple, did anybody else experience this at all, or was Isaiah alone there? He doesn't talk about anybody but himself, and I get the impression that maybe he was the only one there. And he hears this voice say, "Whom shall I send? And who will go for us?" And I think he kind of looked around and realized that that voice was talking to him, and him alone. And he said, "Here I am, send." me i noticed in the english standard version that after here i am there's an exclamation point and i think that's the way we usually think of it you know that isaiah is so moved and so emboldened that when he hears the voice say who who will i send and who will go for us that he just kind of steps up and says here i am send me i'm not sure it was like that i'm not sure but what he didn't hear that voice say Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he kind of looked around and he said, Here I am. Send me. This is obviously intended for me. And whether he was excited and emboldened and a willing servant or not, at least he knew that God wanted him to do something. But he wasn't really sure why. You see, the voice had said, who will I send and who will go for us? But he didn't know at that time where he was being sent or what he was being sent to do. But he found out, beginning in verse 9, he, because God says, go and say to this people. I want you to notice that. Go and say to this people. What did he say about this people? He said, they are a people of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So God is saying, I want you to go to this people, this people of unclean lips, this this sinful nation, this people whose sins are outlined in great detail in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. Before this vision happens, five chapters detailing the sins of the people of Judah. I want you to go to those people and say... What? Go tell them everything's okay. Go tell them it's all going to be all right. Go tell them it's not as bad as you think. Keep your chin up. Go tell them I'm, I'm with you. I'll strengthen you. I'll see you through this. No. The message isn't that positive. He says tell them that they will hear, but they will never really listen and they'll see but they'll never understand and they will never turn and be healed how would you like to hear that lesson how would you like to hear that message and i'm telling you this but you know you're not going to believe it you're not going to pay any attention to it you're not going to turn to god you're not going to understand because your heart is too hard. You're, you're so sinful and so hardened in your sin that you will not turn and you will not be healed. And so Isaiah asks in verse 11, how long? I don't blame him. How long, oh Lord? How long am I supposed to do this? If they're not going to listen, how long am I supposed to keep telling them? And what he's basically told is, that he is to keep on doing it until it's too late for Judah. He's to keep on doing it until they have been utterly destroyed. He's to keep on doing it until they've been taken captive in a faraway land. And we know now, looking back on it, that was about 40 years from the day this vision happened. Forty years. His task was to tell these people for the next 40 years You're hearing, but you're not listening. You're seeing, but you're not understanding. You are not going to turn. You are not going to repent until it's too late. And once it's too late, it's just too late. That was Isaiah's worship experience. And from that day forward, his life was never the same because proclaiming that message became his life's work. That's what he spent the rest of his life doing. Now, we have to ask, are there any parallels for us? Can we expect anything like Isaiah's life-changing experience of worship? Should we expect anything like that? Well, maybe not so dramatically, but still, worship ought to be a life-changing experience for all of us. We ought not to be the same when we leave the presence of God. We ought not to be the same when we've been together to worship and we've sung these great hymns about God's holiness and about our sinfulness and about the sacrifice of our Savior for our sins. That ought not to leave us the same way. When we leave, we ought to be different people. We ought to be changed. Above all, we should come away with a deeper appreciation of God's holiness. And you say, why his holiness? Because that's what's emphasized in Isaiah 6, and because having a changed perspective of God's holiness will change everything else. If you get a grasp of what the holiness of God means, it will change everything everything in your life. It will change your thoughts. It will change your actions. It will change your words. And the lack of understanding of the holiness of God means that we are unable to grasp things as they really are. I want to ask you to listen to this quote. It's it's a bit long, and I apologize for that, but it's well worth hearing. It's from David Wells in a book called No Place for Truth. Listen closely to what Wells says. He says, The loss of the traditional vision of God as holy is now manifested everywhere in the evangelical world. Notice he didn't say in the unbelieving world. He's talking about the loss of holiness among believers, and not just among believers, but among conservative believers, among people who regard themselves as evangelicals who believe in Scripture as God's inspired word and believe there's a heaven and a hell and all those other things. But there's been a loss of the concept of the holiness of God. It is the key to understanding why sin and grace have become such empty terms. What depth... Of meaning can these terms have except in relation to the holiness of God? What depth of meaning can the term sin have if you don't have any understanding of God's holiness? What depth of meaning can the word grace have if you don't have any understanding of God's holiness? Divorced from the holiness of God, sin is merely self-defeating behavior or a breach of etiquette. Divorce from the holiness of God, grace is merely empty rhetoric plus window dressing for the modern technique by which sinners work out their own salvation. Divorced from the holiness of God, our gospel becomes indistinguishable from any of the host of alternative self-help doctrines. Divorced from the holiness of God, public morality is reduced to little more than an accumulation of trade-offs between competing private interests divorced from the holiness of God our worship becomes merely entertainment the holiness of God is the very cornerstone of christian faith for it is the foundation of reality sin is defiance of god's holiness the cross is the outworking of victory of, of victory of god's holiness and faith is the recognition of god's holiness Knowing that God is holy is therefore the key to knowing life as it truly is, knowing Christ as He truly is, knowing why He came, knowing how life will end. Holiness is the key to it all. Holiness is what changed Isaiah. Holiness is what will change us. If we really get a grasp of how holy God is and how sinful we are, and how desperately we are in need of God's grace. That ought to happen every time we worship a deeper sense of God's holiness. And the deeper our sense of God's holiness, the deeper will be our sense of His grace. And that sense of His grace will make us want to answer the call to serve Him in the same way that Isaiah did to serve him in a lost and dying world. You see, God didn't cleanse Isaiah to cleanse Isaiah. There was more going on there. When that seraphim flew from the altar with that burning coal and touched his lips, it wasn't just so Isaiah could be a better man. It was so he would become his servant to go to his people Israel and declare his will. It prepared him for service. Why has God saved us through Jesus Christ? just so we can enjoy the blessings of salvation? As wonderful as that is, and you know that isn't the answer. We have become disciples of Jesus Christ so that we can go into all the world and make disciples of other people so that we can proclaim the love of God to a lost and dying world. And you say, but this is a world that isn't going to listen. Yes, just like the people of Judah weren't going to listen, and yet some will. Some will, and still our task is to make the declaration. Our task is to make the proclamation. Our task is to be God's messengers, his instruments, in taking the message of his love and his willingness to forgive all who will come to him. But first they have to hear the truth about God and about his holiness and the fact that they are lost and hopeless without him. Listen, no one is ever converted to Christ until they first know they're lost. No one. No one. If someone just sort of slides over and says, okay, I think I'm going to be a Jesus follower. Those seem to be nice folks, and that seems to be a decent way to live, so I think I'll just do no. That's not conversion to Christ. Conversion to Christ comes when you know that you are lost, that you are hopeless, that you are dead. When you stand there with Isaiah in the presence of the holiness of God and you're saying, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a woman of unclean lips. I am lost. And until the fire of God touches you and cleanses you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, There will be no conversion. The world has to hear that truth and that's where you and I come in. I'm going to say something here that I don't want to be misunderstood. So let me first of all clarify. The country in which you and I live is not Israel and we're not Judah. We are not the chosen people of God as a nation. No nation on this earth is, not even the one that calls itself Israel, which, by the way, is populated by 75% atheists. That is not biblical Israel. That is not the chosen people of God and neither are we. A lot of Americans have lived with the delusion for a long time that we are God's chosen nation. We may have been chosen to do some things, folks, but we are not in the role of his people, Israel. But the church is the new Israel of God. Wherever the church is, whether we're here in the United States or we're in Europe or we're in South America or we're in Asia, wherever the church is, we are the chosen people of God. And chosen for what? Chosen for service. But although our nation is not the chosen people of God, there are a lot of similarities between their situation in the time in which Isaiah lived and our own when you get home, let me ask you to read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5. Read those five chapters, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see that the same conditions that existed in Judah in Isaiah's time exist in our country, our own country, at this very moment. You'll see the same denial of God. You'll see this, that there is lots of religious activity, but there's not any genuine righteousness You'll see the abuse of the poor and the helpless. You'll see infantile leaders who lead us not toward God and toward righteousness, but away from God and away from righteousness. You'll see that the same conditions that prevail then prevail now. That there is material prosperity, but tainted with idolatry. That there is arrogance. That people are calling evil good and good evil. That we are critical of things that are actually godly. and applauding of the things that are actually abominable in the sight of God. That's what's going on in the society in which we live. There is evil and immorality of every kind. And there are enemies knocking on our door, and there is no firm determination to withstand them. Read Isaiah 7. Those Assyrians are out there knocking on the gates of Jerusalem. And God sends Isaiah... To the king. And he says, God has not deserted us. He has not abandoned us. But you need to ask him for a sign in faith. And he just says, oh, oh, but I don't want to put God to the test. He's such a weakling. He doesn't have enough faith to ask God for a test. He doesn't have enough faith to formulate a test. He doesn't even know who God is in reality. And Isaiah says, then God will give you a sign. And he starts looking far down in history and telling him, not that God's going to save you from Assyria. But he's going to save the world through a child who will be born. There are enemies knocking on our door. There's no firm determination to withstand them. There is uncertainty. There is turmoil. There is violence. People are asking the question, who's going to save us? Will the next Will the next voting cycle do it? Will the next political party do it? Will the next leader do it? And the answer is that we've got to realize that nobody's going to do it except God. Nobody's going to do it except God. But what happens to a nation like that? It comes under God's judgment. And that nation is eventually destroyed. But there is hope. And I'm not talking about the hope that some people talk about, which I think is a false hope, that America will suddenly turn around and turn back to God. I don't believe that's ever going to happen. I've read too much history to believe that. I've read too much of the Bible to believe that. I don't know of a nation in history that ever marched down that road away from God, turning good into evil and evil into good, and turning The things of God as though they were abominations and the things that are abominable to God as though they were good. I don't know of a single nation that's ever turned that around. Maybe temporarily, but never for long. That is not the hope. But the hope is, the hope is that there will be people who in their desperation who in their desperation will turn to God for the real life that he offers through his son, Jesus Christ, that they will see this world cannot possibly be our home. This world cannot possibly be it. This world is not going to make itself better. Nobody's going to reform us. We're not going to turn around. We've got to start looking, as the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, above the sun and not under the sun. We've got to start looking to a God who is holy. And holding out that hope of an all-holy God who yet forgives those who turn to him is our mission. That's what we ought to be more and more committed to every time we leave worship. We ought to every time have a clearer sense of God's holiness, a clearer understanding of our role as his people, and a clearer vision of our mission to speak his word to a world in all of its sin and all of its confusion. That's how worship ought to change us as followers of Jesus. But first of all, that sense of God's holiness has to draw you to the cross. That sense of God's holiness, that recognition, woe is me, I'm lost. I don't have any other hope. I've tried the self-help books. I've been to all the therapists. I've read every, all the things online that are supposed to turn me around and make my life better. I've tried all the medications. I've tried all these things to make me better. I have one hope, and that one hope is the God who is holy, and that God has sent his Son to this earth to die for my sins. And that's my only hope. He's my only hope. And until you grasp the reality of that, of your need for forgiveness, of your helplessness without it, and you're ready to say, woe is me, there won't be any hope for you. But right now there is. If you're ready today to confess that you are lost and that you need to be redeemed, you need to be cleansed. If you're ready today to confess that Jesus is the one and is the way and you're ready to be baptized into him and have your sins washed away, you see the correspondence to that angel coming and touching Isaiah's lips with that coal is that moment when you confess Jesus and with a believing heart are baptized into his death and your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven and your guilt is taken away. If you're ready to do that today, see, only hope. Don't let it pass you by. Let's stand together and sing. There's a message true and for the sinful and the